Dear listener, a special treat for you on the podcast. I have with me an economist, Dr. Stephen Hale, who is a lecturer in economics at the University of Adelaide, where he's been lecturing in financial and macroeconomics since 2002. Welcome aboard, Stephen. Thanks very much, Trevor. That's great. So a little bit about you and so that people understand your background and qualifications. So you've been teaching at at the University of Adelaide, and I see here it says, Stephen is a modern monetary theorist. What's a modern monetary theorist? How is that different? Well, don't be put off by the word theory. Modern monetary theory is just an approach to, it's a brand name, really. It's the first serious challenge to what we call neoclassical macroeconomics, which is the approach to talking about the economy, which nearly everybody is familiar with. In decades, I mean, arguably since the 1930s, really. And it's in the news a lot at the moment. We were in the news quite a bit in January because we had Bernie Sanders' chief economic advisor, Stephanie Kelton, with us here in Adelaide. And she was in all the Australian, virtually all the Australian newspapers and on TV while she was here. We have a, a very prominent modern monetary theory or MMT economist who I believe actually was the first person to apply that brand name to come up with the, the, the name modern monetary theory. His name is Bill Mitchell and I hope people enjoy the podcast we're doing. But he also did a, a long pod, which uh, after they've watched this one, people might like to look, look out with Alan Kohler, who people will see every evening on ABC News a couple of days ago, which explains MMT in a lot more detail, perhaps, than uh, than we're going to do here. And it would be good to look at perhaps after we've we've introduced MMT. Okay, I'll put some links on the mm. on the show notes so people can find those. Yep. yep. If the the big difference between us, well, there's lots of big differences between us and the old fashioned approach to thinking about about macroeconomics. But the big difference that's in the news at the moment is that we have always had a very different way of looking at the appropriate role for the federal government's budget in the economy, and particularly we see deficit spending by governments. And of course, in Australia at the moment, there's going to be a considerable amount of deficit spending, much more than people would have imagined was possible a few months ago. We see it in a very different way to how orthodox economists see it. So, so, so basically the sort of traditional conservative government theory has been that, that government deficits are bad and surpluses are good and they kind of liken it to a household budget whereas a household you wouldn't spend more than you're earning. That's considered bad form. But I, I sort of I've, I looked at a bit of what you'd written and I think I looked at one of the YouTube videos that you did and it seems to me that the the, the mistake people make is when equating the government to a household, what they're doing is they're forgetting that the government actually prints money. And so when the government owes money, it's really it's able to fulfil its promise to repay because it's very easy for the government to print money. Is, is that kind of a big part of it? We don't say printing because that makes that, that that evokes images of people carrying around wheelbarrow lo- loads of $50 notes, first of all. And secondly, and we're in the process at the moment of moving rapidly towards the elimination of physical currency in our economy entirely. That's the way it seems anyway. And from, for example, there's there's been no increase in the amount of physical currency in the economy and there won't be in the next few months either. They do quickly create money every time they spend. 
I'll explain how public finances work very, very simply in a moment. Before I do, I perhaps ought to say that before I came to Australia, I used to train bankers, including people working in the Bank of England. So what I'm saying is literally true. I'm not making it up as I go through the story. I would add that the best old-fashioned orthodox economists actually know this, and they are lying to people some of the time, but they justify that to themselves because they think there are good reasons for lying to people. If people want to check out later on, and again, I can give you a link to this, the very first Nobel Prize winner in economics was somebody called Paul Samuelson, very famous economist. He wrote the first modern first-year economics textbook in the 1940s. Uh, various editions of it have been in use down the years and probably until the 1980s. It was the best-selling textbook in economics. So people watching this podcast, if they've ever done first-year economics at uni, as one or two of them might have done, they may well have used Paul Samuelson's book. Well, there's a video of him in an interview, I think, from the 1970s, where he says, basically, this is a superstition, just as old-fashioned religions have a lot of myths which are there to scare people and to discipline them. So it's useful for people to believe that the government budget has to be balanced, at least on average over time, even though this is not true, because that's a way of disciplining otherwise irresponsible politicians. Now, that's the justification that they give for lying to people about public finance. Personally, I think if you have irresponsible politicians, you should look for some more politicians. You shouldn't lie to people. I don't think as a social scientist, it is a valid justification for the narrative which you use when you talk to the general public to say that you're lying to people and that's okay because you're doing it in what you believe to be their own interests. So the lie is that the government budget needs to be balanced because they want people's personal budgets to be balanced, and it's an example? Is that, is that what you're saying? Because they think politicians otherwise would go willy-nilly spending irresponsibly. They think otherwise, or at least is what they say, and uh, I, I don't go along with this, but they, they argue that otherwise politicians, if only they realised how much freedom of action they have, would be completely irresponsible, would spend without limit, and would create hyperinflation. I think that's complete nonsense. But as I said, if you have irresponsible politicians, you should find some responsible ones to, to replace them with. If I could just explain about the, the way that it actually works, maybe. The first thing to say is I would ask people, although this is difficult to do, after decades of listening to a misleading narrative, but to get out of their head any parallels at all between their own budgets, our own budgets, and the federal government's budget. Because you and I, and every business organisation in Australia, and all the not-for-profit organisations in Australia, and local governments, and even state and territory governments, are currency users. As a currency user, before I can spend Australian dollars, I have to go and get them. I have to earn them or I have to take them out of savings that I've built up in the past or I have to borrow them. Of course, if I borrow them, I am imposing a burden on myself in the future 
because I have to repay those dollars that I've borrowed and I have to pay interest and I've got to find the dollars from somewhere if I'm not going to go bankrupt or be in severe financial distress in the future. Well, that's true of you and me. As I said, it's true of the small business around the corner. It's true of the giant corporation. It's even true of the Victorian or New South Wales state governments. They are currency users. They're not currency issuers. The federal government is in a completely different position to the rest of us. Maybe in childhood, or perhaps you, perhaps this is in your children's, when your children were young, you watched the Sesame Street program. And in Sesame Street, there was a, there was a tune that the, they used to sing. One of these things is not like the others. I won't try and sing it now. But there were, they'd have various items that would be bobbing up on the screen. And by the end of the song, you were supposed to identify the one that was different to all the others. Now, the federal government's budget is different to absolutely every other budget in the Australian monetary. And it's different because the federal government is a currency issuer. The federal government spends dollars every day. And every single dollar that they ever spend is a new dollar. So when people talk about printing money, as I said, I don't like that term. If we talk about issuing currency, that's not something new for the government to do. It's something that the government has always done. And it does every single day. Every dollar the government spends is a new dollar. Well, that's different from you and me. They don't go and find dollars first before they spend them. So it's not the case that they raise dollars through taxation or borrowing. And then that, that would be the case for a state government. It's not the case for the federal government. The federal government spends new dollars into circulation. Could you just describe the physic, how that physically happens? Because in a situation where the government is spending more than it's getting in. so oh, Well, I haven't mentioned the getting in yet. Right. No. Let's leave that to one side for the moment. Yep. The government, every dollar that the government spends is a new dollar. Taxes don't come into it. They don't get taxes in. They destroy dollars with taxation. So a dollar spent by the federal government places a dollar in our banking system somewhere. Now, it matters who it goes to. It could go to you and me. It could go to the ABC. It could go to Gina Reinhart. It goes somewhere, but it's a new dollar. Now, of course, if they just spent dollars into circulation and they never deleted any of those dollars again, you'd expect that there'd be a total amount of spending in our economy which would outstrip the productive capacity of the economy, that we'd get shortages and that we'd get inflation that would undermine the value of the dollar. And if you took it far enough, of course, you could create hyperinflation and people might stop using dollars entirely. And that's where taxes come in. But taxes do not raise money to pay for federal government spending. That's not what happens. Yep, I'm recalling now from your video, it was the government. That's what they do. The government creates. Taxes throw dollars in the bin. Mm -hmm. Taxes vacuum up dollars and throw them away. That's what taxes do. In fact, taxes play two roles macroeconomically. First of all, this is a sort of abstract role, I I suppose, they create a demand for the Australian dollar. So if if we imagine what we didn't have a monetary system yet, and you were introducing a currency for the first time, and you wanted people, if you were in government, to be prepared to do jobs for you, 
then you'd want them to accept these dollars that you were creating and, and to work for them. The way in which you'd create a demand for dollars would be that you'd impose a tax. Right. So you'd say, in a month's time or in six months' time, you're going to have to pay me some Australian dollars or you're going to be in big trouble. How are you going to get these dollars? Well, you're either going to have to work for me, the government, or you're going to have to provide some service to people who work for me, the government, but you're going to have to get these dollars. Now, time and again through history, this is how a currency has been introduced. It's been introduced by creating what we call a tax liability in, in the private sector. And by doing that, you create a demand for your currency, and then you spend some of that currency into circulation. You can't tax it out of circulation until you spent it into circulation. So logically, government spending comes first. In this case, it's obvious the government can't go and collect taxes from anyone in Australian dollars because they don't exist yet. So you have to spend the dollars into the banking system before you tax some of them out of the banking system again. And then it's important for you over time to tax enough of them out of the system so that they maintain their value. So government spending creates Australian dollars in the banking system and actually also in banks, the accounts that the banks have themselves at the Reserve Bank of Australia, at the central bank. We then tax some of those dollars. Sorry, this, all the background noise is, is, is putting me off a bit. The, you we tax some of those dollars back out of circulation again in order to maintain the value of the dollar and to prevent there being inflation because there's too much spending on not enough goods and services that are available. However, although taxes play a vital role in the system, it is not the case that taxes and government spending have to be at the same level. And indeed, historically, this is not normal. In, in Australia, for example, for about 80% of the years since federation, the, the federal government has run a deficit. It's spent more dollars into the system than it's taxed out of the system. And Australia is not unusual in this. This is the case in the great majority of countries. And for technical reasons, if you run huge persistent trade surpluses, this might not be true of you. So if we were talking about Singapore or Norway, but for almost all countries over time, almost all the time, governments have historically run deficits. This is nothing new. In the case of the US, across your entire lifetime, the only period of significant government surpluses was the last four years of the last century under Bill Clinton. Other than that, the US government has always run deficits. And it's important that governments do run deficits because the government's deficit is our surplus. So when the government spends more than it taxes, it's putting more dollars into our bank accounts than it's taking out of them. It's making a net deposit of dollars in the banking system. It's helping to create, in other words, sustainable, strong private sector balance sheets. That's all a government deficit is. And when, when, worry, go on. When, when would be a good time, if any, to run a surplus? When would it be justified? Because our, our Conservative government was crowing about bringing the budget into surplus. So... When, if any, is it necessary to have a surplus? Well, first of all, they weren't going to manage to bring it into surplus because even before this virus hit, the government budget, having been for a few months in surplus, was back in deficit again. 
But the only time that it is appropriate to run a government surplus is when it is necessary to limit total spending in the economy, total spending in our economy by the government and the private sector and the rest of the world in order to avoid accelerating inflation. So you can imagine if you're in a country with a big trade surplus, where there's lots of demand for goods and services produced in our economy from the rest of the world, and where the private sector is also spending heavily, where the private sector is not saving, but instead going into debt and spending a great deal, then under those circumstances, if the economy is at full employment, running at full capacity, and if inflation is an issue, then rarely it will be appropriate to run a government budget surplus. But usually what happens when politicians ill-advisedly aim for a surplus and may even achieve one is one of two things. Paul Keating managed a fleeting surplus at the end of the 1980s. You remember what happened in the early 1990s, which is a nasty recession. What is a government budget surplus? It's when they take more dollars out of the banking system than they put into it. In other words, they are vacuum cleaning dollars out of the system. What that does is it drives the private sector into debt. And if the private sector is either unwilling or unable to take on more debt, it simply causes a recession which pushes the government budget back into deficit again anyway, because tax receipts crash and welfare spending goes up. And that's exactly what happened in the early 1990s under Paul Keating and Bob Hawke when Australia had double-digit unemployment, or I should say the last time Australia had double-digit unemployment. The other thing that can happen, during the Howard Costello government, for eight out of ten years, the, the federal government ran budget surpluses. This is a unique period in Australian economic history. And yes, the Conservatives look back on it fondly, but even the Labour Party, foolishly in my view, are intimidated by it. The economy during those years, of course, did not have a recession. But what happened was that we went from a country where in the early 1990s, our household debt to gross domestic product ratio was 40%, which meant we had one of the lowest levels of household debt in the world amongst high-income countries. And we had relatively affordable property. By the end of the Howard Costello era, we had a household debt to GDP ratio of over 120%. When you look at household debt to after-tax or disposable incomes, it's nearly 200% now. The only country in the entire world with a higher ratio than us is Switzerland. Nobody else. Consequently, what happened during the Howard Costello years was within a deregulated financial system, with the government encouraging people to drive up property prices even further within that system, we tanked up on household debt. Households are not currency issuers, obviously. They can't electronically create money. And so what we have managed to do over that decade is create a financial system which is much more vulnerable to shocks like the one we're in at the moment than it was previously and than it needed to be. There should not have been that financial deregulation and the property market bubble under Howard and Costello. We should not have had those government budget surpluses. That was a mistake. And of course, we never got anywhere near genuine full employment. We had genuine full employment in the 1960s when unemployment in Australia was typically one and a half percent. 
and when Robert Menzies almost lost an election in the early 60s when unemployment went above 2% and it was seen as a scandal. If a surplus takes money out of the economy, then wouldn't that ordinarily depress business activity and prices? Or, or it, so- does, it does if the private sector is not, not prepared to replace that money. Now, I don't want to go into with you because it, mm. it's time consuming. Another time. It wouldn't excite people to, yep. to something called the monetary hierarchy, but there are different forms of money. In our economy, we sometimes distinguish between vertical money and horizontal money. Vertical money is money spent into existence by the Commonwealth government. And when we have the benefit of that, then we sometimes say it creates net financial assets in the private sector. It means we've got money that we haven't borrowed into existence, you and you and me. We don't have to pay it back. It's not acting as a constraint on us in the future and the government debt which remember is just all those dollars the government has spent into existence that they haven't yet taxed back out of existence that's all the government debt is it's nothing to be scared about there's not going to be a crisis relating to it that is better thought of as the net money supply to you and me to the private sector the other form of money is money which private banks create which you and I borrow into existence from those banks and that we have to repay And it is possible for an economy to continue to be robust and to grow for a number of years based on private sector borrowing, based on the private sector taking on more debt. But it's not sustainable in the long run. So that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand. Government deficits are perfectly sustainable. As long as they're not inflationary, the government is never going to run out of dollars because, as I've said, when they spend, they create new dollars but 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 private debt and government surpluses are unsustainable a government budget surplus in a country without a big trade surplus will eventually drive the economy into a recession and can cre- create a, a major financial crash mm. just thinking to the yesterday's announcement so dear listener we're recording on the 31st of march so the day after a big announcement of 130 billion dollars that the government promised to pay to people who are, or to businesses, who are then to pass it on to employees who, where the businesses are in trouble. And my question is, somewhere there is an account where these checks are coming out of, where the, where the government is sending checks to people or electronically depositing money into businesses' accounts. And th- that account if money is going out at a, at a faster rate than it was previously, how does money physically get into that account? Does it come from the Reserve Bank or does somebody in the government simply sit at a computer and tap digits into a ledger and say, abracadabra, we now have a billion dollars in this account that we will just start sending checks from? I can I'm tell you how it works. Yes, how it works is unnecessarily complicated. Of course. I'm, I'm but I can, I, can, I can certainly tell you how it works. The way things work at the moment, and actually there's a whole group of, of accounts and there is some involvement of private sector banks too because in past years, bogus reasons to do with administrative convenience or what they call efficiency, some of it's been privatised out. But basically, there is a big account of the government at its central bank. Remember, this is an account with itself. It owns the Reserve Bank of Australia, the official public account. 
And if the government spends money, let's say they give it to you, then when that expenditure takes place, the Reserve Bank has funds into an account, it's called an exchange settlement account, that your bank has at the RBA, and your bank credits your account. So that's how it comes to you. Now, the next question to ask is, how do they top up the official public account? Again, the government's account. How come the government doesn't run out of dollars? Now, I'll tell you how it has happened in recent years. It didn't always used to happen like this. How it's happened in recent times is that we have got into the habit of the government issuing treasury bonds, issuing what people regard as government debt by auction to financial institutions that bid for these bonds on a, on a, on a, a regular basis. When the current system was introduced, I've said recently, actually, the current system came in in 1982. That's just showing my age. So it's not all that recent. But when the current system came in, the reason for doing things the way it is done at the moment is not because the government needs to borrow money by issuing those bonds. The Reserve Bank, in a, a, a document which it put out in 1982, and actually it's on the RBA website still, there's a history of government bond issuance on the RBA website if people want to look it up. When they went to the auction system in 1982, it was because when the government spends more than it taxes, they put more into bank reserve accounts than they take out. And that floods the private banks with cash. And for reasons I probably shouldn't go into, if that happens, the Reserve Bank's official interest rate, called the cash rate, everybody's heard about the cash rate, which is currently 0.25%, the Reserve Bank loses control over. It goes down. So in order, when, when we move to something like our current interest rate system, interest rates used to be administered in Australia in the 1970s, when they were freed up and left to the market, in order for the RBA to control the cash rate, it was necessary to drain that cash again from the banking system. And the way that cash was drained was from, from originally it was the Reserve Bank, later on the responsibility was transferred to the Australian Office of Financial Management, which is part of the Treasury it was necessary for somebody to sell government bonds, which absorbed that cash again, took it out of the banking system. This was also popular with fund managers because, of course, rather than them having transaction accounts with banks, they now, they now held uh, treasury bonds, which are highly liquid, absolutely safe, and that they got a, a good interest rate on. But things have changed in the last 11 days or so because the Reserve Bank has now started doing something called quantitative easing, which means they're buying those government bonds back again. So the system as it works at the moment, when the government spends more than it taxes, yes, they issue government bonds, which they sell to private investors, or what's called the primary market when they're first sold. But then immediately, or almost immediately, the Reserve Bank is coming along and buying those bonds on the secondary market and taking them back out of the system again. Now, the Reserve Bank is part of the federal government anyway. So the end result is that basically the Reserve Bank is just crediting the government's account. That's what's happening. 
but they're doing it indirectly. The government is, yes, it looks as though it's borrowing dollars from the private sector by issuing bonds, but then the government's reserve bank is buying those bonds on the secondary market. So you end up with the reserve bank, you could say, lending dollars to the government. It's even more absurd than this because the federal government then pays interest on these bonds, which it pays to the reserve bank. The reserve bank then accounts for these interest payments as profit. And guess what happens to reserve bank profits? It gets they go back to the government. Right, of course. So basically, okay. yes, the government is just spending without any financial constraint. The Reserve Bank is crediting a cell on its spreadsheet, which you can call the official public account if you like. The government is spending that money. If somebody doesn't understand how the system works, I can quite see that they might think that the government needs taxes to top up its account or the government needs to borrow to top up its account. That's not what ha- what's happening. What, what is happening at the moment, basically, is the RBA indirectly by by an accounting sleight of hand is stuffing the the treasury's account at the RBA with as many dollars as the treasury wants to spend that's what's happening okay so in a sense it's got nothing to do with any other country sometimes people talk about us sort of running deficits and borrowing from other countries as part of this process but but that that's not part of it at all, right? So well, we don't th- ban th- that- foreign investors from buying yeah. treasury bonds. They they right. they don't they don't generally buy them in the primary market. But anyone can buy treasury bonds in the secondary market. So down the years, there has been a high demand for the Australian dollar in investment portfolios around the world. Our currency is the fifth or the sixth most heavily traded currency on the foreign exchange market. And the rest of the world has wanted to net save in Australian dollars. The counterpart of that is that until last year, we were running sort of a trade deficit. The right term is the current account deficit on our balance of payments. We were not borrowing from the rest of the world in foreign currency, not overall. Our private sector debt, which is in foreign currency terms, is the word is hedged. Basically, overall, Australia does not have foreign currency denominated debt. The rest of the world holds our currency. As far as the government is concerned, the federal government has no significant foreign currency debt at all. However, foreign investors own government bonds. They own quite a lot of them. The government has not been dependent on foreign investors to buy those bonds. However, they have not banned foreign investors from buying those bonds. That's why foreign investors hold them. Yep. Okay. If I can just sort of try and put this in my mind to get this straight. The the Reserve Bank provides, in a sense, cheap money to banks who then give it to the federal government in the way of buying a bond. So a bond is like an IOU from the federal government saying in in five years' time, I'll give you this money back plus 3% or, or whatever the interest Basically, rate so is. Basically, so is a $50 so, note. A $50 yes. note is an IOU from the government it, but it's yes. via the RBA, but it's just saying, I'll yep. give you another $50 note. So the RBA in there sits at a computer in a ledger and just puts creates money, which it then lends at a cheap rate to major banks and people like that, who then who then effectively deposit that with the government in the form of a treasury bond 
and get an IOU back from the government. Not really. Ah, I've got that wrong. Well, under normal circumstances, what happens when the government spends more dollars than it taxes, then there is a transfer into private banks exchange settlement accounts. If nothing else happened, there would be more funds in private sector banks exchange settlement accounts than they needed to hold. Now, the way in which the cash rate works, the cash rate is not an interest rate at which the RBA lends to anyone. It's not an interest rate at which the RBA borrows from anyone. It is a target the Reserve Bank publishes for the rate of interest at which it wants private banks to lend to each other overnight or for 24 hours. That's what the cash rate is. It's a key interest rate. The Reserve Bank, strictly speaking, when they make their cash rate announcements every month, they're not announcing the cash rate. They're announcing their target for the cash rate. Now, if there's too much cash in the banking system, then there will be more banks wanting to lend excess cash overnight to other banks than there are banks that need to borrow. And under those circumstances, the cash rate would fall below the Reserve Bank's target. The Reserve Bank does not want that to happen. In order to stop that happening, historically, when the government has spent more than it's taxed, putting additional reserves into the system, To prevent the RBA from having to do anything drastic to defend its target cash rate, the Treasury issues government bonds. Those government bonds drain off those excess reserves and prevent them putting downward pressure on the cash rate. So what what the end of this story basically is that it is the government spending that is funding the purchase of the Treasury bonds. It's not the Treasury bonds that's funding the purpose that the, the, the government's spending. Now, everybody that works on the operational side in the Reserve Bank understands this perfectly well. And when the current system was introduced, because prior to 1982, the RBA often just stuffed cash into the government. When it, the current system was introduced, it was explained very clearly. Government spending in excess of taxation, fiscal deficit provides the cash in the private sector that that is then used for the bond purchases. The purpose of selling bonds is to drain those excess reserves from the banks under normal circumstances. And there's always a market for the bonds because you're getting a much better deal if you buy government bonds than if you hold balances at the RBA. So there's no problem selling them, but the system has just changed. They are now, they now basically are flooding the banks with excess reserves. The RBA, in an email to one of my colleagues this week, said, we realise that over the next few weeks, the cash rate is likely to fall below our target. We will lose control of the cash rate. It will fall towards the rate of interest the Reserve Bank pays on all those excess exchange settlement account balances. That interest rate is not 0.25%, it's 0.1%. Of a percent that was part of their announcement. The RBA pays interest on the accounts that banks have with it almost at zero now, but it's been set at 0.1 of a percent. And what the Reserve Bank is doing is it's targeting the rate of interest on three year government bonds. So they're buying government bonds in the secondary market, they're not just buying three year government bonds, they're buying government bonds with a variety of terms to maturity, but they have set themselves a target which is to buy those government bonds until they've driven the prices of them up enough 
so that the interest rate on them is 0.25% equal to the cash rate. And they said they're prepared to do this without limit. Basically, that's setting the price of government bonds on the secondary market, and it's ensuring then that investors will be prepared to buy whatever government bonds the government wants to issue at approximately that price because they know they can sell them onto the RBA and even make a tiny profit from it. It's unnecessarily complicated, and I regret having to explain it to people, really. The the end result is that the Reserve Bank of Australia owns lots of government bonds. That's what's going to happen. They already own some. They're going to own a heck of a lot more. This happened after the GFC in many other countries, not here. The size of central bank balance sheets was multiplied by more than 10 in some of these countries. They ended up owning so much. The Japanese central bank owns nearly half of all Japanese government debt. And Japan's government debt is six times as high as ours. The European Central Bank owns about 40% of the entire debt of governments in the Eurozone because they've bought it all up. That's what's just started happening here. But at the end of the day, the funds are typed into the government's account of the RBA and the RBA owns government bonds. And that's basically, as Bill Mitchell says, I think, in his podcast with Aaron Kohler, that's one of them is your left-hand pocket, the other is your right-hand pocket. Repayments mm. on those bonds notionally go from the government to the RBA. They are then recorded as RBA profits, and they're paid back to the government again. So basically yep. what is happening, to cut a long story short, the Reserve Bank is typing money into the government bank account. Okay. Now, with the current sort of crisis that we've got and the government has made this decision to to pay $130 billion over six months, Mm. if they had done such spending in just normal times, if we were to go back in time two or three years ago and have announced some major spending initiative (coughs) of they'd suddenly found a social conscience and decided to create a universal basic income or something like that, would there have been an effect of of inflation or of the dollar being devalued or something which is not a problem today because with the current crisis, the world is very forgiving of whatever anybody wants to do and you can get away with more now? Is that, is that how it works? Well, it's not so much the world being forgiving. It's at the moment, private sector incomes have imploded. So this is not a stimulus package. This is not adding to total demand. Instead, it's replacing some of the lost demand. As far as inflation is concerned at the moment, whole sectors of our economy have closed down. So it's difficult even to calculate an inflation statistic because the way we normally do it, the consumer price index, a lot of items in the consumer price index simply not available at the moment or won't be very soon. But the point is that it's you know, people have talked about an economic stimulus. This is not a stimulus package. It's not part one, two and three of the stimulus package. It's part one, two and three of what is, given the scale of the challenge, a relatively modest support package. You're not trying to make the economy expand like a balloon that's about to burst. You're trying to stop the balloon from imploding because all the air's leaked out of it. So inflation, as long as the government, in concert with business, with relevant businesses, maintains supply chains, of the basic necessities which we need to buy at the moment, we're not going to have an immediate problem with inflation. If the prices of basic necessities should rise, if it turned out the pandemic was far worse than people expect at the moment, and it was very prolonged, you could imagine a worst case scenario where there were widespread shortages. 
And then you'd have to think about genuinely wartime measures like rationing and price controls. But let's hope that nothing like that will happen. Otherwise, as the economy, as society emerges from this terrible and historic, we're really living through the history books at the moment, event that we find ourselves in, then the measures that have been taken at the moment will be phased out. And after the Second World War, there was a benefit of all the deficit spending during the Second World War that the private sector emerged with really strong balance sheets. And we may even find under those circumstances that some people who might be receiving income that makes them feel secure at the moment, but there's nowhere to spend. Some of those people might even end up being, to, being able to pay back some of the debts. That, that, that we, there might be that kind of benefit. I don't imagine that there's going to be a serious issue with inflation. If there is, in a way, that's a good sign because it will mean wages are on the way up. It will mean the economy is relatively buoyant and it will be something we can, which we can deal with at the time. It's not an issue at the moment. Now, to go back to your question, I am not an advocate of a universal basic income. Shock, horror. Everybody hate me for saying that. And, but there are reasons for that. And there are reasons for why once the Greens, and again, let's be, oh, let's be open, I'm a member of the Greens. Once the Greens, a year and a bit ago, whenever it was, Richard Di Natale announced a UBI as a policy measure. Everybody jumped on him. And in the election, they went dead quiet about it. They forgot about it. The reason being is that unless you are prepared to completely restructure the tax system and go to something like a Scandinavian tax system, which good luck if you're trying to get people to vote for that, but you can try. A universal basic income is either going to be far too low a level to keep people out of poverty, in which case I'd rather not bother, or it's going to be inflationary one of the two under normal circumstances, because if you wanted to match the single person's age pension, UBI, which I think you'd have to do if particularly people talk about getting rid of all social security payments like that, you can't get rid of them and then put someone on a lower figure. If you're going to do that, it involved virtually, it involved an amount of spending, which was virtually as high as all federal government spending on everything. Now, you could net out some of the costs, of course, of those payments that you were replacing and administration and all that. But even so, it would have involved a 50% increase in federal government expenditure, which in, under normal circumstances in our economy, bearing in mind, of course, that the people who would be receiving this money, a lot of them would really need it, and, and I would find other ways of delivering it to them, it would lead to a big increase in in spending, it's not an ecological measure. You'd need to open up some of your coal-fired power stations again, maybe to power the economy, if you were going to try and supply all the goods that people would want to buy, if they had all this additional money. That would have been a that would have been a massive stimulus on steroids for the economy. So that's why I'm not in favour of it. I am I'm in favour, and I have participated a bit in Get Up's economic campaigns. I'm in favour of a guaranteed minimum income, unconditional. That's not the same thing as a universal basic income. And I'm also in favour under normal times, and I hope this will happen, and it's been discussed a lot, particularly by Bernie Sanders in the US. I'm in favour 
as a superior automatic economic stabiliser to anything we've ever had in the past of a federal job guarantee. So that if you lose your job, or if you don't have enough hours at work, then sure, there is a guaranteed minimum income. We're not going to let you starve, but there is a much higher payment than that you can take advantage of. If you take a job in a program which is locally administered but federally funded by the currency issuer working either in environmental repair and restoration or social care in one way or another we're not talking about nursing here but things like support to keep elderly to allow elderly or vulnerable people to be independent at home to work within the not-for-profit sector we've got a whole variety of ideas that we're not short of jobs that people do. And in South Australia, we've been talking to local councils. I did a forum which had the mayor and some councillors from Mitcham Council in South Australia before Christmas talking about this. So local authorities are not short of ideas and the local community is not short of ideas. There's a lot that we could be doing usefully in Australia. We're not running out and we aren't going to run out of things that we can do for each other if the funding is available. The idea behind a federal job guarantee is that when the economy takes a downturn, if people lose their jobs, they have the option, not the obligation, not going to lose other entitlements, but they have the option if they want to turn up at the local job guarantee office and to participate one of a number of scalable but socially useful activities for, for which they'll get paid and they get the normal working conditions. And you can stay in the federal job guarantee permanently, if you like. In the New Deal in the US in the 1930s, they paid people to do arts, drama, they paid people to, do, to write, to do scientific research. But you could also be being paid to plant trees or pull up weeds or work on, on small infrastructural projects, yes, but things like paths through parks, not the sorts of things that would normally be done in the private sector or the conventional public sector. And so automatically, Spending on the job guarantee will increase during an economic downturn without any delay and without politicians or public servants having to forecast anything or react to anything or to take any decisions because this program would be budgeted per participant. It wouldn't be budgeted in terms of its total size, so it would automatically react to an economic downturn. And then the idea is that during the upturn, people, many of them, would transition back out of the job guarantee again into better paid jobs in the private sector or maybe even in the conventional public sector. So when necessary, spending on the job guarantee expands to cushion a downturn. But then also when you want the fiscal deficit to be smaller and perhaps rarely, exceptionally, even to run a fiscal surplus, spending on the job guarantee would contract during an upturn. That's how the federal job guarantee would work. And I would be pitching that at a package of, a, if you're working full-time in the job guarantee, something like $40,000 a year, while I would be guaranteeing a minimum income, which would be at least a little more than the current, what was New Start payment. But the difference between it and New Start would be there'd be no mutual obligations on you. It would just be a payment that you were getting, if you like, because you happen to be a citizen in Australia. Mm. That's how mm. it would work. But I wouldn't be paying, making payments to Gina Reinhardt and then taxing some of them back. That's what a universal basic income is. I would not be doing that. I, I don't yeah. think it works. 
Speaking of Gina Reinhart, have you looked at, have you got, well, I'm sure you do have an opinion on a wealth tax, a sort of an Elizabeth Warren style wealth tax in Australia? Got any thoughts on that? A wealth tax does nothing to pay for anything. That's the first thing to say. And it's not even effective in terms of inflation control because the people you're taking those dollars off, we're not going to spend them anyway. Why I am in favour of taxing the rich is because they're too rich. So there, is a, there was a, an article written by somebody called Beardsley Rummel, R-U-M-L, in the 1940s. I think it was published in 19, January 1946, but it can be found online. The name of the article, if my memory serves me correctly, is Taxes for Revenue Are Obsolete. And it explains, you know, I, t- I said to you down the years, central bankers and leading economists know the truth. It explains, like I explained, that taxes don't pay for anything at the federal level. Government spends and they tax some of it back. Well, that was the, fir- uh, that was the point he was making. And so he was then saying, OK, taxes don't pay for federal spending. So what are they for? And the first point he made was that the taxes, t- taxes are there to defend the value of the dollar and to ensure that there's not too much spending going on in inflation. So you have taxes to reduce the ability of the private sector to spend, to create room within the productive capacity of the economy for the government to spend on public goods and all the other things it needs to spend on without creating inflation. That's the first point. But the second point you made, taxes are there to redistribute wealth. So why have a wealth tax on Gina Reinhart? Because she's too wealthy. Personally, if there was an easy way of doing this, given that we have a minimum wage, I would have a maximum level of remuneration. I would pre-distribute rather than redistribute through the tax system, given the choice. I would have workers on company boards of directors. So I would have employees in general having more influence over the packages that chief executives get from companies. I would be looking very carefully options and other benefits that chief executives get. And in an ideal world, there would be a maximum level of remuneration. And I'm also happy for there to be a maximum level of wealth. You could even let people notionally pay themselves above that, but have a list of charities to which any additional sum has to be donated. So effectively, they have a 100% tax rate over a certain level. And I'm not opposed to a wealth tax in itself. I certainly think there should be an inheritance tax, as there is in lots of other countries, as there is in the Mm. UK. But people have to bear in mind, we are taxing people like Gina Reinhart heavily because we believe they're too wealthy. They've got too great a demand over real resources, and especially they have too much political influence. And that's why we're taxing them. Does it pay for healthcare? Does it pay for Medicare? Does it pay for schools? Does it pay for public services? No, it does absolutely nothing at all to do that. I'm sorry if that's shocking for people, but the way our monetary system works at the federal level, taxes fund nothing. That's not how the system works. And if you are using taxes to limit inflationary pressures, then if you wanted to be a sort of pro-rich person, person doing arguments, you'd say actually taxing the rich doesn't, doesn't really help there either because they're not going to spend the dollars anyway. It's such an interesting way of looking at it that we are so indoctrinated of, of thinking of money in and out and balancing and, and the way you're describing it is such a, 
a contrast to uh, and just another dimension of thinking about it that it's just hard to get your head around it as a matter of ordinary thinking. So, well, take, so I take you back to Paul Samuelson at the beginning, that mm. Nobel Prize winning economist. The narrative that we're all used to is an old-fashioned religion. His words, not mine. It's there yes. to scare people. Yeah. Now, on a completely different topic, kind of, but just before we finish up, the US dollar, it, is it true that the US has been getting a bit of a free ride and an advantage from being the world's sort of default currency? And could this sort of coronavirus sort of crisis accelerate the demise of the US dollar where it's no longer the world's currency? Do you, do you have any thoughts on the US dollar at all? What, what, tell, tell me what I need to know about the US dollar. As far as the US dollar is concerned, I suppose there is one way in which things are unfair in that the global financial crisis started in the US. And when the global financial crisis happens, everybody wants to buy US dollars. And the same thing to an extent is true now. The Australian dollar is seen as a relatively high-risk currency, partly because we're a commodity currency. And so when the world is a very uncertain place, there tends to be downward pressure on the Australian dollar. But people can relax. Our economy is flexible and enough so that actually we hardly notice it. The, the dollar, the Australian dollar, has been sliding for a while. And you would imagine that means imports are a lot more expensive and so we're worried about inflation. No, the RBA before this crisis was missing its inflation target on the downside, on the low side, not on the upside. In a, in a, in a diversified economy like Australia, diversified modern economy, you can have quite big fluctuations in exchange rates with very little impact on inflation, almost no discernible impact at all. As far as the US is concerned, it is still the case, notwithstanding Donald Trump being president, it's still the case that the normal reaction of the world when everybody's panicking is to want to buy the safest asset they can buy. And the safest asset that you can buy in a world where so many things are priced in US dollars is US government debt. So everybody wants to buy US treasuries and to buy US treasuries you've got to buy US dollars. So that's what's, ha what's happened. Now, is the US dollar going to lose its status? Perhaps one day, but we should bear in mind that Britain stopped being the world's largest economy well before 1850. The pound was the completely dominant global currency in 1850, 1860, 1870, 1880, 1890, 1900, 1910. You'd think it would stop with the First World War, but it didn't really. Even in the 1920s, the US dollar did not become the Finally, the dollar supplanted the pound, and even then only partially, initially, in the 1940s. So what's going to replace the US dollar? There might be a bipolar system at some point in the future, but at the moment, China is far too authoritarian, and there are far too many controls on China's financial system, and the yuan is not really a freely tradable currency so Chinese currency isn't, a position, isn't in a position to be and the eurozone is on the brink of collapse again 
because every time there's a crisis, the Eurozone's on the brink of collapse. So there isn't anything else for people to hold. So is the US dollar going to lose its position? No. Does it put the US in a special position? Well, I suppose in a sense, because the rest of the world wants to save in US dollars over time. So the US is able to, Donald Trump talks about this as though it's a disadvantage, but to me it's an advantage, to run persistent trade deficits forever. Basically, they're getting goods that people have worked hard to produce and they're giving those people bits of paper, mm. or not even bits of so, paper, items. So what you- or, or, uh, 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 They're giving them a bank statement. But that's true of us too, because we've run mm. trade deficits, or at least current account deficits, until last year, every year since 1974, and there isn't a significant difference between the, the fiscal space, the budgetary space our government has, and that had by the US government, and to different degrees also, governments in places like Japan and the UK and even New Zealand. And the important thing is that all those countries share the characteristics of what people like me call monetary sovereignty. They issue their own currencies, which they collect taxes in, unlike Greece or even Germany. They have floating exchange rates, unlike a lot of middle and low-income countries. So they're not guaranteeing to convert their currency into any commodity or any foreign currency, anything that they could run out of at a fixed rate. And they have no significant foreign currency debt, at least the government doesn't. So all of those governments are in the same position as our federal government which is that they have no purely financial constraint at all. They cannot run out of their own currency. They cannot run out of anything. The constraints on government spending are the real productive capacity of the economy, the people, the skills, the capital equipment, the technology, the infrastructure, the institutional capacity, and the natural resources. That's what constrains government spending in those countries, a, 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 a financial constraint, as far as those countries concerned, doesn't exist. And a government debt crisis, as far as those countries is concerned, is impossible. So was it a mistake for countries to join the euro yes. and to lose that, yes. that sovereignty? And we were warning about it when it happened. There is a, a, a famous economist called Wynne Godley, who was the head of the Department of Applied Economics at Cambridge University, was a British government advisor for a while, ended up working in New York, somewhere called the Levy Institute, which would have been set up by another famous economist called Hyman Minsky. Wynne Godley is, if not one of the founders of modern monetary theory, because he was from a previous generation, is a favourite uncle of modern monetary theory. And when the treaty which led to the euro being established was set up, was first agreed to in 1992, he published a short article in the London Review of Books, which is freely available online. If people wanted to Google it, it was called Maastricht and all that, because it was the Maastricht Treaty. And in that article, and in a variety of more of, of sophisticated academic papers down the years written by him and others, he not only explained why joining a single currency with no federal government able to spend money into existence and able to allocate resources from one part to another. He not only explained that it was a mistake, he also explained why it would fail. So people were very interested in Wynne's work when the GFC struck. 
Sadly, Wynne died in 2010. He's not with us any longer. But I, I recommend, if you want to see a piece of prophecy... Fortune telling. Just read Maastricht and all that. London Review of Books, October 1992. It's up there on the on the internet. And it wasn't just him. There was Charles Goodhart, who is at the LSE and and what used to be at the Bank of England. And again, from that previous generation, I wouldn't call him a modern monetary theory economist, but he's been a colleague of, as a friend of many MMT economists. He was writing the same thing in the in the 1990s. So there were warns. And the problem was they set up this system where the, there was no government behind the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank was not supposed to backstop government spending. And they went even further than that. They set up this rule where governments were not supposed to run a deficit bigger than 3% of GDP. What happened then, of course, there was the financial crisis it became essential for some of these governments, particularly <coughs> those which had gone through property market crashes and banking crises, to run government deficits far in excess of 3% of GDP. The financial markets realised that some governments, not in the Eurozone, despite the fact they had a lot of debt, were freely able to do this because they were monetary sovereigns. So there was no question of the UK government ever facing a, 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 crisis, a fiscal crisis, a, a debt crisis, as a result of bailing out and basically nationalising its banking system, which they did temporarily in the UK. They could do that freely because they had the Bank of England behind them. But similar things happening in Spain and Ireland would have led to huge defaults and would have led to the collapse of the euro were it not the case that, to an extent in 2010 and then properly in 2012, the European Central Bank broke its own rules and started to backstop those governments. What was indefensible as far as the ECP is concerned and what is the, the shenanigans and the dishonesty and disgraceful behaviour of many leading politicians and economists in, in, within <coughs> the Eurozone is described in a book called Adults in the Room by Yanis Varoufakis who was the Greek finance minister, where they basically mm -hmm. decided to make, a, 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 to, to make a, a, an example of Greece and just to hang Greece out to dry. I really recommend that book. It came out last year. Yanis recently was touring Australia. He was here in Adelaide at the Writers' Week. I, get, I got to listen to him speak at the SACOS co conference here. That tells you a lot about how the Eurozone worked. But yes, the euro, as it was originally devised, was a mistake. There are ways of reforming the eurozone to make it work better. Um, at the moment, they are relaxing their rules somewhat in order to <coughs> allow <coughs> governments of places like Italy and Spain to continue to operate. What will happen in the medium term? I don't know. The ideal thing to happen from an economic point of view would be federalism, to have a strong federal government with a central, with a central budget. But the way that national identities work in Europe, it doesn't seem that any such body could have democratic legitimacy. So it doesn't seem like that's very likely. What's my recommendation? I don't think my recommendation will happen. And it wouldn't be Yanis's recommendation. My recommendation is a planned uh, unravelling of the Eurozone and a return to national currencies. 
Yes, I've read Giannis's book and it seemed to me that he still had hope that the system could be modified to be made to work. And he sort of called their bluff, but his preference was to stay in the system and make it work. But he was prepared uh, to leave. And he had planned to leave. And James Galbraith is a modern monetary theory economist who, if you read his book, you would have seen that he had James Galbraith with him in Athens working on a backstop plan, which was to basically be in a position where you could relaunch the drachma. That wasn't his first choice. But you also know from reading his book that although, you know, unscrambling the omelette is is difficult, but Yanis was not in favour of joining the euro in the first place. Backing out of the euro is something where there is room for disagreement. Yanis and Bill Mitchell are, are good friends. Bill Mitchell is our Australian modern monetary theory economist who wrote a book called Eurozone Dystopia. He is on the side of saying, no, it's better just to go through the adjustment costs and move out of the system. Rapidly, you'll be better off out of this system. <coughs> Yanis is of the view that you can reform the system The best approach to reforming the system, if this was possible, (coughs) would be, you know, like in Australia, we've had we've got a Commonwealth government in the US. They have a federal government. They have states and having a federal government in Europe. There are other things that you can do. Another thing you could do is you could say, let's get rid of that three percent limit. Let's have a 10 percent of GDP limit because that's where you need to go to when there's a crisis. Mm. And let's have the European Central Bank unconditionally backstopping governments so that it is acting mm. as a as a central bank for those governments. That creates some of its own problems too, because in 5,000 years of monetary history, and this is not something new, we've had money and we've effectively even had central banking for 5,000 years at least. There has never been a monetary experiment like the Eurozone, and there mm. are probably good reasons for that. So just to finish off, we're covering, we're covering the planet here. But in terms of Brexit, did you have a strong opinion about how drastic the Brexit, the effect would be on the UK? And does, does the crisis at the moment change that in any way? Does it just, just some, some Brexit elevator pitch thoughts, Stephen? I didn't think that there'd be a massive impact in the long run. There were bound to be some transitional costs. But they're irrelevant now, really, because this is a this is a crisis is massively bigger than Brexit. Mm. So there was there was nonsense on both sides, really, in the Brexit debate. But the forecasts about economic collapse in the UK as a consequence of going to World Trade Organization rules for (coughs) trading with Europe were, in my view, nonsensical. That's not to say that there were not going to be and will not be some adjustment costs because the details have not been worked out yet. On the other hand. I was ambivalent about Brexit because Britain wasn't in the euro anyway. Yes. The issue, or an issue, that people who were very keen from the left on Brexit were concerned about (coughs) was that some of the policies that Jeremy Corbyn was putting forward and some of the policies which any progressive government in the future might want to put forward in the UK or in other European countries Some of the things that were happening now, actually, because there's no technically, probably against European law. For example, Britain at the moment is renationalising the railways because all the companies are crashing. Now, there were a possibility that such measures of that would be against European competition legislation. 
so could be blocked. And on that basis, that you could put an argument together and say, well, if we had a progressive government in Britain, we're probably better off out of the euro uh, of the European Union because the European Union has been set up fundamentally as a neoliberal institution with a bias towards privatisation and with practically practically forbidding state ownership where state ownership didn't exist before and putting all sorts of other restrictions on the freedom of, of national governments to act in ways that they might want to act, perhaps to protect people or protect the environment. So there is a lexic case. It's not all about right-wing xenophobes. And there are people on the left, including in the Labour Party, who were in favour of leaving the European Union and indeed going back a generation or two ago when it was called the European Community. Famous left-wing people like Tony Benn were always in favour of leaving and never in favour of joining in the first place the way that it's set up. Mm. Uh, the issue then is, <coughs> are you Yanis Varoufakis? Do you want to try and reform it from within? Or do you think, no, that's just impossible? We're better off outside. I don't have a clear answer to that, so I'm ambivalent. Mm. Yeah. Stephen, you're starting to enter coughing fits, which indicates you need to grab some medicine or a, a glass of water or whatever. And, and we've gone on and this has been great. I'd really like to do this again at another time and explore this because people don't talk about economics enough and it's tricky. And the way you're describing it, a new way of, well, not a new way, but a, a completely different way of thinking about money and how it's generated. It's it's part of what we need to do to get our heads around some important questions over the next few years. So thank you very much for coming on to my humble no podcast. And I hope, I hope we can do it again down the track.